This is an ABC podcast. Hello, my name's Stephen Schubert, bringing you country breakfast from Arundaland in Alice Springs. We know that women are massively underrepresented in leadership positions in our parliaments and our biggest companies. But is it a different story in agriculture? We have got so many people who are lining up uh, to want to be part of our programs and they are women and they are making a difference and they know they can. And so I'm seeing a totally different dynamic in agriculture. Stories coming up, but first, let's get the latest in rural news from right around the country with Kath McAloon. Kath, good morning. Good morning, Stephen. Farmers' input costs are very high, particularly with fertilisers, and as Russia's war in Ukraine drags on, fertilisers are just getting even more expensive. That's right. There's no good news in sight. Europe's Fertiliser Industry Association says that more than 70% of the continent's fertiliser production has been curtailed or even shut down. And it's all because of a lack of gas. Russia is holding back supply and Europe is heading into winter. So that crunch is just going to get harder and gas prices have now reached record highs. Chris Lawson is the head of fertilisers at CRU Group and he says the situation is unlikely to resolve itself quickly. Uh, the cost of production is well, well, well over current prices. So as a result of that, it's uneconomic for these producers to be running their plants. Uh, we estimate that uh, well over 50% of European nitrogen capacity is currently curtailed or completely shut down. Um, there's some estimates that are actually closer to 70% there. Um, so it, either way, it's a very large number and there's a, going to be a shortfall of nitrogen in Europe as a result. Wheat markets are so uncertain with the Russian invasion of Ukraine that farmers are not doing what they normally do, which is forward selling to hedge their bets. Yeah, usually farmers would be forward selling and sort of, you know, getting the best of both prices if they could. But uh, it's been a really unusual year for almost the entire year. Both the Australian and the global wheat markets have shown sustained high prices. So you'd think that um, farmers would be, you know, trying to cash in on some of those high prices. But growers in Queensland still aren't prepared to lock in anything when it comes to their upcoming harvest, partly because of all the uncertainty uh, Toowoomba-based grain trader Pete Johnson says this year is one of the most undersold winter crops he's ever seen. And it's said to be a big winter crop given that it's been such a wet growing season. That is, of course, if rain doesn't swamp the harvest over spring, summer, and who knows what we might see with the latest uh, La Nina forecast. But at any rate, when you get a bumper crop, you can expect it to push prices down when there's more um, grain on the market, just the supply and demand and prices come down, but not this year because it's really uncertain just what Ukraine will be able to export, whether they will indeed be able to export much of their crop at all. So Mr Johnson says it's probably the most undersold winter crop that he's seen for some time. The prices come back a bit and at the same time the, the traders are reluctant to stick their necks out too far because they don't know what sort of quality profile we're going to have with this crop, 
their financing costs are going up. There's a whole lot of macroeconomic uncertainty, so there's not a huge amount of confidence from the buyer side either. While we're talking about Ukraine, we know millions have fled that war-torn country, and some have come to a dairy farm in the Riverina. That's right. At Blighty in the southern Riverina of New South Wales, there's a farm there that milks 900 cows three times a day. So you can imagine um, just how much labour they need to do all those milkings around the clock. And COVID and closed borders meant that farmer Lachlan Marshall had a very tough time recruiting people to come and milk his cows. Now, Ukraine does have a huge dairy industry. Well, it did before the war. So now, Lachlan wants to help Ukrainian refugees to find work in his district. Massive opportunity. Like I said, the skill shortage is huge. The opportunity is huge. Um, you know, people are, people are desperate to try and find people skilled and unskilled. Um, you know, our, our local sporting teams, our local communities are all starting to um, feel the exodus of people and, and the shrink in the community. Um, I think it would be fantastic for the local economy. Um, I think it'd be fantastic for the local people as well. Australian peanut butter producer Bigger Foods announced it would pay less for locally grown peanuts because imports were cheaper. Yeah, so Bigger Foods took over the old Kraft peanut butter brand and rebranded it Bigger, and it said that it would need to drop the prices that it's been paying to local farmers, or otherwise it would um, be forced to buy the cheaper imports. So Australia's centre of peanuts is Kingaroy in Queensland, and also um, peanuts are grown in far north Queensland. And growers say that this cheap stunt won't help them to grow the peanuts. Peanut grower Tony Russo says consumers really want Australian peanuts in their peanut butter. Yeah, I think the consumers will will have a look at that and think, hey, what's going on here with, with Bega and their products? We're in a really good position here. We've got good ground moisture. We've got 100% water allocation. We're in a prime position here to grow good peanuts. All we're asking for is that the Bega and that uh, are mindful of, of the growers in this area and, and support them wholly. New research has found a widely used insecticide negatively affects shrimp and prawns and it's a particular concern for aquaculture. Yeah, so insecticides are sprayed for pests in sugarcane and rice fields, but now it's a bigger concern that one of those ingredients is the common neonicotinoid. So there's been concern about the effects that these um, have on bee populations and now it also seems that there's potential for effects for shrimp shellfish. So Dr. Peter Butcherine is from Southern Cross University's National Marine Science Centre and he's found that this insecticide can impact on the feeding behaviour of prawns. It shows that the prawns react biologically so they actually grow slower. Uh, Malt is infected so they um, are slower to transition between their life stages. They're also a lot more prone to predation and Surprisingly, the exposure to these insecticides may also have implications for um, human health for when, they, for when they are consumed. And Kath, let's finish with 
a little bit of luxury today. <laughs> Caviar is, of course, a delicacy to some and it's reflected by the price tag. So could it be a moneymaker in Australia? Well, some in the local aquaculture industry believe so, and they want to be able to import the species of fish that's used to make caviar. So at the moment in Australia, um, you might think we have local caviar, but it's kind of um, it's kind of a bit like the champagne issue. So fish eggs are already produced domestically for consumption, but they're not technically caviar because when you're talking about Australian caviar, we're only producing salmon and trout roe, um, and it has to be prefaced it has to be called sort of salmon caviar or trout caviar, but it's not allowed to just be called caviar. That's because the true caviar comes from a particular fish, which is the sturgeon fish. And currently it's illegal to import that sturgeon fish into Australia to make true caviar. Um, but at, at the moment, a review is underway to decide whether we should be allowed to import sturgeon fish in. And some in the aquaculture industry believe that if we could, it would uh, open up a big market. So Peter Docking has worked in aquaculture for more than 30 years and he's one of those that's been pushing to import live sturgeon for farming. He's been uh, on this campaign for a few years now and he believes that if approval is granted, it could open up a big local industry for caviar. There is a big potential to replace the importation of caviar in Australia. Caviar from the beluga species is very very valuable and the amount if farmed potentially correctly by people who know what they're doing then there is a good source of income and a great job opportunity for a lot of people around the district caviar for breakfast perhaps <laughs> <laughs> yeah washed down with a glass of australian <laughs> sparkling no doubt Kat McAloon, thanks very so fancy. much thanks Stephen. what does trust mean to you. At ABCRN, we know you can choose where you get your information from. And that choice is ever-expanding. And it's not always straightforward. But when the stakes are high... And the questions are paradigm-shifting... You can rely on ABCRN to bring you nuanced, informed answers. Answers you can trust. Because we know you expect more. ABCRN. Think bigger. This week, we're headed to an outback cattle station where they've made some big savings on repairs and maintenance. They're putting it down to having an all-female stock camp. And we'll meet the grazier who's preserving a piece of history close to the hearts of her local community. She's restoring a church that's more than a century old that's hosted the district's weddings, funerals and baptisms. And we'll get an introduction to the sport of dog trialling. It's getting a strong following, even among non-farmers. But there's one essential, which is a good dog. And that can come at a big cost. I was under the impression you could get a good dog for a carton of beer, you know. <laughs> no, she's, uh, all of a sudden we're paying $800 plus transport for this bloody pup. And, yeah, so it was, you know, $1,200 dog landed and spent a bit of cash on him. So yeah, we, that's his name was Cash. We'll meet the owner of Cash the Dog, who's having some success in the sport of dog trialling. That's coming up. First today, to a flower farmer who was hit hard by wet weather and flooding earlier this year. Now, with the help of her community, she's getting back on her feet. Jennifer Nichols has her story. 
in this raised bed here, I've got about 60 new tubers in there, 60 varieties. So I've only been wow. buying. Yeah, so I'm just buying like one of each variety at this, the moment just to build up our collection. And we're going to be taking cuttings as well to increase our stock level. So a few of these new dahlias have started pushing through the ground. Ooh, exciting. So, yes, it's very happy to see those tiny little green sprouts. Doesn't look like much, but <laughs> it's such a sign of good things to come, yeah. These new green shoots in Erendor's rows of flower beds are a welcome sign of fresh blooms ahead after a tough time for her fledgling flower farm. Earlier this year, two floods and weeks upon weeks of rain smashed the farm hard, wiping out crops and destroying bulbs. Erin was heartbroken, but hard work, some new farm infrastructure and support from her community has her back in a good place. Feeling really good now. We've been working really, really hard, building some raised beds. We're looking at putting in a hoop house just to navigate future rain events, mitigating the risk a little bit more, especially for our really precious items like our dahlia collection, which I lost our entirety of. So, um, yeah, as you can see, we've got some beautiful raised beds which have been built specifically for the dahlias. So, yeah, spending all my savings on dahlia tubes at the moment. Not <laughs> that I had much to start off with after the funds. Hello, I'm Jennifer Nichols, and I'm revisiting Erin's Petalhead Farm and Florist in Gympie in southeast Queensland. We're standing among some very pretty snapdragons that were gifted to the farm after the floods. Yeah, all Australia who are supply little plugs, which are little baby seedlings, they heard about our massive losses and called me up one day and offered us all of these. I think it was over a thousand snapdragon seedlings donated to us. I think I almost cried when I when I got that phone call. I was in total disbelief, but it definitely saved our butts. I can tell you that much because if I didn't have those, I still wouldn't have had an income until a month ago. Probably helped keep the business alive, to be honest. It looks like you've put in a heap more beds as well, yes, and you've got yes. different variety of flowers mm -hmm. growing now. I think coming into our second season as well, we're kind of getting the hang of what works here, what doesn't. We're just getting better and better at it. And what's been the challenge in getting the soil to be all right after being smashed by so much water. We have been ordering huge amounts of compost and composting all of the rows. We've been fertilising like mad leading into spring. So everything's really growing super well. We've got beautiful, colourful yarrow here, which is really, really happy. Feverfew is just about to burst with flowers. We've got lots of stock, lots of ranunculus over there. And business has been booming by the looks of it. You're getting a lot of orders for your arrangements. Yeah, just this week alone has been absolutely exhausted. Yesterday I was on my feet arranging orders <laughs> for like six hours straight and then I had nothing left so we sold out by yesterday afternoon and it's just amazing the support we're still getting and I'm still just even getting better and better at my job I suppose so the arrangements are getting better and better as well. You look at a lot of larger scale farmers and they're saying you have to do it really big to be successful but you are a really niche farm supported by your local community. Yeah I mean I think it depends what your business plan is I suppose we're like a boutique farmer florist setup so we aim to be completely self-sustainable which is why we grow such a variety of plant types flower types foliage 
and it, it's working. And a lot of businesses subscribing? Yeah, so we do a subscription service where weekly or fortnightly I arrange some flowers to suit a budget and deliver it to your door. Lots of people getting on board with that as well. It's really nice for us because it's definite income, I suppose, <laughs> and you can kind of rest easy knowing you've got that business in the pipeline. Zinnias over there. Yeah, so we've got, um, I'll show you down this way a little bit more. Yeah, we've got some zinnias in the ground already, but lots in the greenhouse. Got a little trial patch of my Icelandic poppies, which are my favourite. Oh, I love them. Yeah. There's just a few in that vase yeah. over there. <laughs> They're for a client later. I'm just getting them to open up a bit. How much was the outpouring of love from the community a part to play in you deciding to stay in business? Yeah, well, I have a lot of really wonderful repeat clients in Gympie, so I didn't want to let them down. And there was a lot of love and support from the Gympie community, as always. Um, so... I think it would have been really disappointing if everybody had I've just thrown a tantrum and thrown the towel in at the same time. <laughs> Let's not make light of it though. Yeah. It was all of your money yeah. and that was a very, very stressful time. Yeah, it was pretty dark times for a few months, definitely. It was very depressing, I'm not going to lie. And I had to come here every day to keep getting it going. It was really hard to look at. It was hard to come to work, that's for sure. And there's your mum. Gosh, she's a trooper. <laughs> yes, mum is definitely a trooper. <laughs> the mud warrior. <laughs> Julie Dora, I was just saying to your daughter Erin that last time I came, it was all action stations and you were madly trying to get dahlia bulbs out of the ground and salvage what you could from the floods. How do you feel now that spring has sprung and things are looking good again? Oh yeah, way, way better. We can actually see a result now, which is good. Did it take a lot of resilience from both of you to make this happen? Yes, yes, some days I think Erin found it hard to get out of beds to face it. We pushed ourselves a lot. What kept you going? Um, just believing that we can do it again and um, not wanting to fail, basically. Coffee and, and red wine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, lots of, lots of red wine. Coffee <laughs> in the morning and red wine at night, yeah. Not the other way around. <laughs> Trying to keep a sense of humour most of the time, yeah. but yeah. When Andrew Jensen came home, opened the door and saw a new puppy, he was shocked. And that was before he found out his wife had paid over $1,000 for him. Yeah, well, I was under the impression you could get a good dog for a carton of beer, you know. And uh, she's, uh, all of a sudden we're paying $800 plus transport for this bloody pup. And yeah, so it was, you know, $1,200 dog landed and spent a bit of cash on him. So yeah, that's his name was Cash. But as it turned out, Cash was worth the big bucks. Andrew noticed he had a knack for mustering. And he and Cash now travel the nation competing in working dog trials in the hopes of becoming Australia's top dog. But Mr Jansen said Cash's transformation from pup to professional was not instantaneous. It's a two-year process. Well, that dog's only just two-year-old, and I've had him since an eight-week-old pup. And, uh, you know, just time and uh, a lot of patience spent with him. But, you know, we got sheep. I started him on sheep at, you know, 12, 13 weeks old, and... They run around chasing the sheep and it's just a simple good dog on the head and they love, they just get addicted to the work, you know, and um, once they're addicted you can kind of put a little bit of command over the instinct and sort of balance it out where you can work together and, yeah, end up with a result where you can come and be competitive with them on the weekend. G'day, I'm Pat Heaney. I'm chatting with Andrew Jansen, who oversaw the recent Queensland State Championships in Comet in the state's central highlands. The competition fielded a record number of entries and drew competitors from across the state. He says the sport has taken off in regional areas 
and he puts it down to its affordability and family-friendly atmosphere. It's a growing sport and there's a lot of young people getting involved in it too now, which, which is healthy and uh, you know, it just shows here there's 160 dogs in the open and 150 in the novice and it's definitely, you know, the numbers speak for itself. The bloke started with one dog, now he's got four, you know, or five more, you know. Myself, I've, I've lost count of how many I've got, but there's, that's, it's just a growing industry for sure, you know. Queensland Working Dog Trial Association Vice President Paul Rowe agrees. Well, I've been trialling for 20 years and um, had some success. I uh, won the Open Dog of Queensland 14 times and, and the Open Dog of Australia six. It started off with a necessity for the dogs for working, you know what I mean, they're uh, a tool in my profession, working cattle, and, and this virtually is just an extension to that, that I get to have a bit of fun with them on the weekends as well, you know. Like most of them have been working dogs and then come here for a bit of fun, but there are people that are cold miners and, and, uh, and then don't have a, uh, a job in the bush, and then they've picked this sport because it's nice and cheap, and you know what I mean, it brings a lot of satisfaction. They train their own dog and come here and play with them on the weekend. But what is dog trialling? The sport mimics cattle mustering. While using only whistles and verbal commands, handlers must use their dogs to move three cattle through a series of obstacles. Mr Rowe has judged dog trials for many years. It's a six minute course. Uh, we start off with 100 points. We, um, we've got four obstacles. We've got to get the hold, the gate, the race and the put away. They all, all the obstacle points add up to 30 points and 70 working points, which means the dog can't tail turn, bite too much, doesn't bark. All these things are points off to the judge's discretion. As I said, and they've got six minutes to do the course. Competitor Jamie Sturrock travelled over five hours from Jalaka on Queensland's Western Downs to compete in the state championships. He says dog trialling is unique, as training up your dogs can mean results both in the ring and in the paddock. Uh, so I guess it started with practical work, so I manage a cattle operation for a living, and uh, I guess, you know, the dog, you get bitten by the dog bug, and I guess the better your dogs get, the more you, you know, keen to improve, and catalogue trollings it's a really good work related hobby that you know the better your dogs can go for for work and for this it's sort of rewarding through the weekend on the weekend so mr Sturrock says the industry has transformed since he joined with many more young people trying their hand at trialing when i first started it was probably considered a little bit more of an older person's sport a lot of lot of semi-retired people and things like that um, but no, as I say, it is a very practical hobby and, you know, it's family friendly. I've got my wife and two young boys here this weekend and they're running around with other kids and riding push bikes and kicking the footy and, yeah, just lots of like-minded people. We can, you know, a bit of socialising and some good competition and it goes hand in hand, I guess, yeah. Mr Jansen said the accessibility and social side of dog trialling mean it's the perfect excuse to have a bit of fun on the weekend. It's good for the soul and the mind, isn't it, just to get out and just forget about work for a weekend and just come and enjoy yourself. It's definitely a social event, you know, that's for sure. There's always a cold beer lying around. Bloody, uh, I think there's definitely room for growth, that's for sure, but it's going to continue to grow. And there's more and more committees like shows are popping up, you know, it's, it's the number of events is, is what's growing. So that's a good thing, you know, you can get down the road and do it. There's a bit of a circuit, so to speak. You can. Some people, you know, we chase points, we try and go for a dog of the year and open dog, novice dog, train championships and all that, you know, so there's, they all accumulate points so, and that's what, that's what helps grow, you know. And though he and Cash are yet to win any dog of the year titles, he says they've certainly got their eyes on the prize. See, it's on the radar, but it's a, it's a long road yet. Maybe a win would be real good. Maybe we'll, you've got to be in it to win it, I guess.
Andrew Jansen, who, along with his dog Cash, competed at the recent Queensland State Championships for dog trialling. That story from Pat Heaney. And you can see some photos and video from that event. Just head to the ABC RN homepage and look for Country Breakfast. I'm Stephen Schubert with you on RN. Still to come, a new life for an old country church, and we'll visit a cattle station here in the Northern Territory where the female crew outnumber males, and it's bringing some unexpected benefits. It's Monday afternoon on Umbiara Station, and owner Angus McKay is sitting quietly at the head of his table. He's chewing through a healthy lunch of fresh quiche and salad, oblivious to the bubbly chatter of his crew debriefing on their weekend just past. Yeah. <laughs> well, I sit there at the dinner table surrounded by women. I've got two daughters and 35 girls working for me. It's sort of... <laughs> it's different. Uh, Smoko conversations are a lot more subtle than they used to be, so... <laughs> nicer. Yeah. I sure how to describe that, wouldn't <laughs> He's a third-generation pastoralist and grew up on the land he now runs with his wife, Kimberly. When I first come out 16 years ago, it was an all-male um, workplace in that time, so I was the only female would have a whole table full of males. So more girls are applying for the job, so, um, yeah, there's definitely been a lot more women applying for these positions than males, so... Earlier this year we advertised, I think we had 17 or 19 females and one male apply for a station hand job. Mm. So overwhelmingly female dominated yeah. applications. G'day, I'm Hugo Ricard-Bell. I'm chatting with Angus and Kimberly McKay here on Umbiara Station, about 300 kilometres south of Alice Springs in the Northern Territory. <laughs> Angus puts the increase in females applying for station jobs down to a factor that might surprise you. Well, I think it's social media. I think now, you know, you get a couple of girls out in the camp here, last five, six years, they're putting it on social media. These other kids down south see that, they go, oh, if they can do it, I can do it, no. Yeah. She looks like me. I could see myself on a horse or a motorbike in the Territory. Mm. I think it's given them the confidence to actually come up here and have a go. For Angus and Kimberley, they've found this a welcome change. Such a good crew, everyone gets along. It's been a really good year staff-wise. The last few years have been pretty good. We've been lucky with people hanging around for a few years. And yeah. Just to, I feel like we've got a good culture, yeah. workplace culture at the moment, So, yeah. which is a lot to do probably because of the girls we've got working with us. Everyone's got a bit of pride about what they do. They're proud of what they do. They enjoy it. It's <clears throat> it's just not just a job for these guys. This is a lifestyle they love. You know. I think we find with the females they're quite flexible. Um, you know, they don't just help out with the, the cattle work and the station work. They, they're flexible enough to come in and help with the children and help with the meals and help in the garden. So everyone does every job these days. A station hand's not just a station hand. She's a flexible person that can do everything on the station that we do. So. And after digging amongst the books, Kimberley's found a pretty decent silver lining. We've noticed that um, comparing our figures from one year to the next, from having an all-male crew to a female crew, that our repairs and maintenance has gone down $24,000 a year by having an all-female <laughs> crew. So, <laughs> um, Were you surprised, Angus, when Kimberly told you those figures? Yeah, initially, but when I thought about it, 
it makes sense. So you, we put girls on brand new motorbikes at the start of the season, end of the year, the bike's still good. It hasn't been carbon across the flat a dozen times, so it just, I guess it's their own self-preservation <laughs> sort of helps them look after gear. No! <laughs> I'm Kelly Jensen, and this ad came up. I just give it a go and see what happens. And three days later, I was in the bus on my way to Colgara. Now, in case you're wondering, Kelly Jansen is from the Netherlands, hence the accent. And that bus trip was four years ago. Since then, she's had a few promotions and is now the leading hand of Umbiara Station. I'm pretty much Gus's right hand, so he tells me what needs to be done and I'll just do it and I'll step up whenever he's not around or when Kim and Gus are both off the station, I'll step up and lead everyone else. Would you have believed you were going to do that, I don't know, what, you said four years ago you've been here? Well, funny story, um, when I first started here I started off as nanny, so I did not see myself in this position at all and I did not know I would like it as much as I do right now. And if Kelly is Angus's right hand, Sarah Sari, a 20-year-old ringer who came up from Ballarat, is Kelly's. When I first started, there wasn't a whole lot I knew. Like, I'm, even now, I'm still pretty new to this, but what I've always loved is just learning something different every single day. Like, there's always something different going on. There's always something I haven't done yet before, whether it's like looking after the grader or changing truck tyres or fixing leaks in pipes. Like there's so many different things that I'd never done before that I got to learn. So I, I think I love that the most. And obviously working with cattle. It's impossible to describe that to yeah. people that have not experienced it. Especially coming from the Netherlands, there's no such a thing as a big property like this. Like on Biera is like a quarter of the Netherlands. What are you going to look back on? These girls, probably. <laughs> yeah, I've just had cruise. an absolute ball with these guys here. They're like my family. And I think that's probably what I'll remember the most. And all the different things that I've learned. Like, I would never imagine myself being on a loader till I started doing loader work two years ago. And I only recently started to learn to work the grader. And before I got here, I didn't even know what a grader was. We have bitumen all through the Netherlands, <laughs> all through Europe. <laughs> I love the shape of it. I love that it's really honest, quite a plain little building, but it's a lovely shape and proportion. This more than a century old building, a forming uniting church, may be plain, but for Queensland grazier Claire McTaggart, it has a certain charm. And for her local community, it's a connection to important moments from the past. It's interesting, a few people said to me already, oh, you know, I've been to, you know, three weddings and a funeral there. And, you know, these, these lovely stories about, you know, that people have actually got a connection with the building. So I, I love that. I love the stories and I'm excited to breathe new life into the building again with the help of the builders. And, yeah, everyone that's been working on it with us, it's really exciting. Hi, I'm Jasmine Hines. I'm visiting Claire McTaggart on her family's grazing property near Jeringa in central Queensland, where she's restoring this 115-year-old church. 
After a nail-biting journey on the back of a truck, the building is being brought to life, ready for its next chapter on this cattle station. Claire is relishing her role preserving this piece of history. Her own children were baptised in a local Anglican church, but that 110-year-old building was blown off its stumps and destroyed in a storm. It was a beautiful weatherboard as well. It was a little bit more ornate than this one. I guess in later years I thought, oh, you know, it's such a shame to lose these old buildings in town. You know, there's so many, there's a little church like this in most regional towns that's, you know, either being used or not. And I love heritage and preserving old buildings. So that was where my interest began. I think I reached out to the church quite a few years ago and they were really helpful and and they were interested in seeing it go to someone that had a genuine interest in caring for it and restoring it to its original condition. So that was a lovely process. They were um, very helpful. That process took a little time because it's not just you know decision that happens in Rockhampton. It has to go to other sectors within the church. So, but they were wonderful to work with. And then it took a little while to to actually change hands. And then another wait, I guess, probably in part with COVID and so forth. And getting the church to its new home was no easy task. I went down to watch it cross the river, and it was really you know had my heart in my mouth, thinking you know I hope it makes it. She trucked the church along a dirt road to her property, passing through a steep river crossing. It's about 45 k's north of Duringa on the Apis Creek Road and it's all dirt. About halfway out there's the Mackenzie River crossing at Folivale and it's the low causeway bridge which is basically in the bottom of the river so it's quite steep in and out and then there's, there's a second creek coming out of it as well and kind of I liken it to an expectant mother and it's, you know, birthing day or whatever, you know, it's um, it's the day and yeah, I definitely felt a little emotional about it, hoping it would make it here in one piece. As you can see, there's rods that actually help hold the structure together and, you know, it's 120 years old. Some of these boards, you know, when we lifted the carpet, that was a really exciting day. You know, there's a few of us in here and we, you know, start up one end and yeah, you just weren't sure what was going to be underneath and then... Um, we found some of the boards run the whole length of the room. Just think, gosh, you know, what's the history of that piece of wood? Where did it come from? It's local timber. It's a credit to the people that came before us. For the restoration project, Claire McTaggart has brought in help. Builder Cameron McDool is working on repairing the old timber. Uh, well, the main thing is when you pull the walls, wall linings, obviously what's behind there. So we had a bit of termite damage to repair in this one. Um, replacing all the old timber windows and sills, uh, but it's been pretty good. It's all timber cladding, all timber frame, timber cladding, all timber lining, so we've got all the nice original uh, moulded tongue and groove. So yeah, we're leaving all that, we've replaced some that's been termite damaged, uh, putting all original large timber mouldings around all the windows, replaced some sections of floor where there was an old stage. So I guess it's all timber, whereas the new builds you'll have either lightweight claddings of fibro and that sort of thing. Or brick whereas uh, this is just all original like timber carpentry work I guess which is you know what we enjoy. Once the building work is complete Claire hopes to share this piece of restored history with others. We will use it 
set it up as a self-contained dwelling so visitors can stay here or if any of the children are home working on the property they can live here. Maybe the odd workshop. I'd love to be able to share it with people down the track. I did think about leaving this one on site. That was probably my preference is, you know, to use it somehow in Jeringa um, because I really think it's part of the town's history but I'm happy that it's still in the district. So this building means so much to a lot of people in Jeringa and just hope we can, you know, hope they feel comfortable coming and visiting it and seeing what we've done to it. I'm really mindful that it, it's, you know, there's a long history with this place and we've got to look after it and respect it and allow people to see it. Claire McTaggart, who's working to restore a 115-year-old church that she's relocated to her grazing property in central Queensland. She spoke to reporter Jasmine Hines. You can see more on that story, including before and after photos and some footage of the church on the back of a truck on its way to a new home. And before that, Hugo Rickard-Bell brought us the story of Ambiara Station in the Northern Territory, where they're hiring more females and saving big money on maintenance. More on that one online too at abc.net.au slash rn. Just look for Country Breakfast. The current has drawn her home. Clean slate, as far as I'm concerned. But in new ABC drama, Savage River... Do you think coming here's a good idea? ..it runs deeper than she imagined. You took my daughter from me. Who are you going to kill next, huh? Has anyone seen my dad since yesterday? Starring Golden Globe nominee Catherine Langford. No, I just want to live my life like everyone else, that's all. And you shouldn't let anyone take that away from me. Savage River. What kind of evil are you? Sunday nights on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. The leadership gender gap is a global issue, and just last week, a review of Australia's ASX-listed companies has found the representation of women at the top is going backwards. But is it the same story in rural and regional Australia? Ali Felton-Taylor gauged the views of a number of female leaders. Georgie Somerset, General President, Agforce Queensland. I think it's really challenging, Ali, and I wonder about the middle section I think about how are we supporting women who are coming through some of the busiest periods of their lives, how are we supporting them around managing their families, managing community and delivering amazing results at work. And we're expecting an awful lot of them and what has to give or how are we providing that support. So what is the, I look at regional Australia, is there childcare? Is it available? You know, if I hadn't had a fantastic mother-in-law and an amazingly supportive husband, it would have been really difficult to do some of the things that I've done and I wasn't in full-time paid employment. From a board perspective, I think that we are bringing women through, but again, those of us in our 50s and 60s have to actually step out to allow the space. When I was in my 20s, amazing women in their 50s and 60s gave me a chance. And I say this now that my challenge is to step out and let those young people in their 20s and 30s step in and to actually back them and be there to support them and mentor them and, and as I say, scaffold them, but actually let them have a go because they have amazing ideas and they will lead us for the next 50 years. They'll be our new leaders. What advice would you give a young woman who, who's, who's an aspiring leader? Oh, look, I'd say back yourself. You know your instinct. We so often doubt ourselves. Get a tribe around you. Gather your mentors. You know, find the people who do back you as well. Hi, I'm Kay Hull. I'm the chair of AgriFutures. I'm seeing a totally different story. 
The entry of women into agriculture is extraordinary. The entry of women into agricultural veterinary university degrees, into science degrees, into agricultural degrees, it's basically the, the major entrant is women. We have got so many people who are lining up uh, to want to be part of our programs and they are women and they are making a difference and they know they can. And so I'm seeing a totally different dynamic in agriculture. My name is Belinda Mawinney and I'm from Grenfell. I mean, for me, it does shock me because I think that when I look around, I can see that there is this emerging movement of women who seem to be getting younger and younger in terms of their aspirations and they're making kind of really significant strides. And then when you hear things like that, you think, is there just a massive disconnect between what we see in our communities compared to what we're seeing in that kind of industry? So, yeah, it's very disappointing. What would you say to someone who dismisses the idea that you have to have particularly female diversity, that, that gender balance? Why do you think it's important? I think it's good and well for people to dismiss it when they're coming from a place of privilege and power. It's very different when you're seeing that landscape from a disempowered seat. You can't be what you can't see. And I do think that that is becoming a really significant statement that women are really talking about a lot and trying to find ways to really leverage relationships and try and get more women in those positions because I feel like it's really going to be up to us to push our way in rather than the door being really open for us to do that. I'm Jane Milburn and I'm from Brisbane. Well it is disappointing but also the companies are missing out on diverse perspectives and I think it's been shown that productivity increases when you've got different ranges of skills and insights so yeah, I, I, I think we need to keep moving in the right direction. I wonder whether COVID had something to do with it and perhaps women were more focusing on, you know, caring duties and perhaps that pulled, pulled them away. I don't know, I'm just speculating. And, and what about how it transposes into, into regional Australia? How do you think women are valued in the bush? Well, everybody's valuable in the bush because everybody's got a contribution to make. So I've, I feel as if sometimes, you know, you see women are extremely capable and doing amazing things. So I would like to think it's, you know, equal representation there. But sometimes also the voice that comes up and the, the front person, is to, it can still be the male. Right? You know, sometimes women don't step up. But I, I, I wonder whether it's, it's not because they're not allowed to step up. It's just maybe they choose not to step up. So I think we have to keep putting our best foot forward and offering our views and considered opinions and based on life experience. Like, I think sometimes we have extraordinary... When I reflect back on my life, you know, I've had such diversity of experiences that... I'm starting to think, well, you know, I've got, a, I've got a contribution to make and an ongoing contribution. I think if we all think like that, rather than hiding the light under the bushel, then maybe that's a good thing. My name is Anna Carr. Yes, it's, it's a bit surprising but in the context of the current political, social and cultural climate. What about rural and regional Australia? It's a good question. I was privileged today to spend time interviewing somebody who's a fabulous contender for a leadership position and she referenced all her 
work on councils, boards, local governments, all of the organisations and making the point that rural and regional Australia give to each other. The need for diversity, the, the sheer need to have a diversity of people in leadership positions, can you encapsulate that? If we don't have a plurality of experiences that we can share with each other, we're short-sighted, we're narrow-minded and we're bound for failure more quickly. You know, it's an opportunity to really hear and respect and then inquire and have a conversation, which is not always straightforward, but always leads to discovery. And I think that's really a rich place that we should get to if we're going to imagine our ways forward as a society. Anna Carr, an alumni and former board member of the Australian Rural Leadership Foundation in Canberra, speaking with Ali Felton-Taylor. Well, still on Women in Agriculture, this week 19 emerging leaders in Australian ag were awarded the 2023 Nuffield Scholarships. They study a diverse range of topics and make a difference to their chosen industries. For the first time, Nuffield Australia has awarded scholarships to more women than men. One of those women is Nicole Logg, a mixed farmer near West Wylong in the Riverina of New South Wales, who's working on the strategic supplementation of sheep. Lyra Webster started by asking her what it means to receive the scholarship. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, yeah, you, you never sort of know with the interviews how well you've gone sometimes, but it was, it's, um, we, I really enjoyed the state interview at Dubbo, the great team there, and, and meeting everyone down at the Nationals, and it's a, it does feel like you're a nice big, in a big tribe of similar-minded people, so really enjoyed that process and fortunate enough to, to come through the other end and be awarded a scholarship, which I'm grateful for. And let's talk about your topic. We have such a wide variety of topics amongst the scholarship recipients. Tell me about yours. You're working in the space of, of feed and nutrient and supplementation. Tell me exactly what you're looking at there. Yeah, sure. So my topic's going to uh, involve strategic supplementation of sheep. So it's really drilling down to, to some of those things that they need, trying to identify what we're already getting out of um, pasture-type systems, whether it's a legume-based system or a grass-based system, and trying to fill those gaps um, specifically. So just being a bit more tailored in our approach, which is more cost-effective and hopefully um, less labour-intensive as well. So, um, And then overlaying that, I'd like to look at more of a functional nutrition approach where there's um, compounds that um, are around and, and ingredients that can you know, help animals digest the feed better, help deal with heat stress, um, help their immune system, and ultimately lead to a healthy animal and um, better performance. In that space of supplements, we're already seeing things like asparagopsis and a range of other things that are starting to come out onto the market. How do you hope to take that sort of space further? Yeah, sure. So it's, I guess it's about um, awareness a little bit. I'm fortunate enough to be involved with um, the AWI subsidised uh, lifetime new management program and winning with weaners. So we get lots of questions come through from participants in there. So I can have that direct contact with people to, to help um, build that awareness from those questions that come in and, um, you know, working with Sheep Connect, which is also an AWI um, webinar and, and podcast, they um, they often have lots of topics like that as well. So I'm hoping to be able to let people know about all my findings and, and hopefully help them take some on board. Well, tell me, as part of this, you get to go overseas and look at, at other industries and what they're doing. Do you have any idea of 
where you want to go and who you want to talk to? Yeah, a little bit. I guess, um, you know, uh, there's, there's Uruguay and, and Argentina and South America there, fairly strong sheep countries, obviously New Zealand, our neighbours, and, you know, the home of the Moreno in Spain as well. So um, that would be... Uh, kick me off but I'm sure I'm going to find out lots more things along the way and sort of looking forward to uh, yeah getting some you know insights into different countries and what they do so if we can can keep moving forward and it's a never lasting sort of cycle I guess but um, you know progressing forward and, and improving animal health or sheep health in general um, is you know really underpinning everything so if we can keep them you know nice and healthy and it might be a few small tweaks that we do that can save us money the sheep respond really well to it. Um, you know, it, it helps. It helps the farmer and, and helps the sheep and the industry moving forward. And before I let you go, get back to your lunch that you're trying to <laughs> eat, Nicole. Uh, of course, Nuffield this year, our first time uh, they've had more female recipients than males. Just tell me, what's that like to be part of? Oh, it's yeah, it's really pleasing because yeah, going through uni a few years ago now, um, there was more females starting to come through. But yeah, we're we're still in a very much male-dominated industry. But um, yeah, there's some really great females leading the way now, and it's yeah, really great journey to be part of with them all. Nuffield scholar Nicole Logg speaking to Lara Webster. A few months ago. I was lucky enough to be at Uluru and I went out to a really fancy dinner where the chefs used a lot of native bush taka foods to flavour the dishes. I got to taste finger limes, which are native to Australia, and their tasty little citrus pearls are highly prized by top chefs. Growing them commercially is relatively new, but already local producers are facing competition from growers in Europe and the Americas. Landline's Helena Bachkovsky looks at how the industry is faring. One of our best customers is in Copenhagen, a company called Gourmet Engross, and they supply the top three restaurants in the world, number one, two and three in the top 50, uh, which was announced uh, a few weeks ago. That must be a bit of a point of pride. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Starting with just one finger lime tree in 2007, the Douglases produced their first commercial fruit in 2010. I actually had one tree and it's still growing and we now have about, what, four? 5,000. 5,000 trees in. Over the last few years, Australian growers have faced increased competition from finger lime farmers overseas. In... 2016 it was beginning to happen. There was uh, finger lime trees and cuttings and seeds going offshore illegally. Uh, that certainly continued to happen. In fact, we used to get phone calls from people who would ring me up and say, I'm about to get on a plane to go to Bangkok. Do you have any finger lime seeds to sell? Uh, and that happened uh, w almost weekly for a couple of years. Uh, so there are very large growers overseas now. For instance, in Mexico and Guatemala, there are two operations that would probably have in the ground, each of them, as many trees as the whole of the industry here in this country. On Queensland's Sunshine Coast, agronomist Jade King has been growing finger limes for the past eight years. To learn more about growing finger limes, Jade applied for Australia's most renowned agricultural scholarship, the Nuffield. It enables her to travel overseas to see what other finger lime farmers are doing. She's already been to Italy, Spain and France and will soon go to the United States, Guatemala and Mexico. Their research and their production is already out there. As much as I would love to hold that product in Australia and go, oh no, this is only Australian, 
we're past that point. And so the best thing I think we can do is be leaders within this industry, ensure that we maintain that Australian integrity in the product and that identity as well. Industry groups like Plant Health Australia are keen to see the result of Jade's international research, particularly in pest management. And of course, by having these plants growing internationally and in other countries that do have these pests and diseases, we've essentially got real life experiments happening now in front of us. So the collaboration between Australian growers and the international growers about how those are progressing, what they have been susceptible to, will really inform the research and development process back here at home. Jade would also like to know more about dieback. Do you have dieback here in, in this orchard? Yeah, 100%. It has been particularly wet. It got probably about 60% of my orchard now. Oh, really? Um, easily. So far, I just know that I've got this issue. So that's where I think building the industry and bringing us all together to share that information. And, and I'd love to see other growers benefit from that and not have to go through the same uh, struggles that I did to find out that information. But you're an agronomist. You love this stuff. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, but I'd, I'd, I'd also like to be successful at growing. <laughs> Despite being out of season, Jade still has some finger limes on trees. It means instead of selling them for $30 a kilo, she now sells them for $250 a kilo. Such is the demand and exclusivity of the fruit. It compensates for the unpleasantness of picking them. They are really spiky. It is tough going. It's middle of summer, you're suited up with the gloves, the long shirt, the long jeans, everything. And it's a very big challenge to be out there for any extended period of time and harvest in amongst thorns. And when you just think that's bad enough, you find wasp nests. So within the first year of harvesting, I was nearly ready to um, get my dad on a bulldozer and <laughs> take them all out. At the famed Thai restaurant, The Spirit House, on Queensland's Sunshine Coast, Oh, wow. Thanks for the finger lives. Head chef Tom Hitchcock is a regular a customer dish. of Jade's. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. He's been working with locally available fresh finger limes for the past five years. These are the yellow curry souffles I made with, uh, with Jade finger limes. So that's the bottom there is the yellow curry souffle, twice baked. On top of that, we've got Fraser Alspanacrap, which is another local product. On top of that, we've got Jade's finger limes. That's going with a celery tamarind sauce and a bit more celery on top and crispy onions. That's the five-star restaurant version, but everyone has their own favourite way enjoying this incredible native fruit. If I do a tossed salad, whack in some avocados, some feta cheese and salmon, then I just sprinkle on the finger limes and I just eat that as a tossed salad with that lime explosion in the middle. What's your favourite way to have a finger lime? On Atlantic salmon, I think. It just lifts it and takes away that really rich, rich flavour. So. For me, it's on carrot cake. Is that right? Yeah. You're fun. <laughs> <laughs> He's naughty. <laughs> Cheers. Finger lime growers Ian and Margie Douglas deliciously finishing off Helena Batchkowski's report, which you can see in full on Landline this Sunday at 12.30pm on ABC TV. And you can, of course, watch it back on ABC iView. That's Country Breakfast for today. I'm Stephen Schubert in Alice Springs. Country Breakfast was brought to you with the assistance of Kath McAloon and Matthew Crawford. Stick around for more great listening coming up here on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.